Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. You are listening to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're now joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you again. Brian, it's great to be with you again. And we were talking before the program started about the Christmas season, about Christmas music, and talking particularly about Handel's Messiah. I'm going to say something here that will probably shock a lot of people. I'm going to say I hate Christmas music. (laughs) Okay, I want an explanation. (laughs) I love Christmas carols. Gotcha. Gotcha. But I hate Christmas music. Like you were talking, the one grandma got run over by a reindeer or even more pathetic, please Santa baby and and some of those. (laughs) That is absolutely pathetic. But some of the great Christmas carols, like, Hark the herald angels sing when you take Charles Wesley and his words and theology and combine it with Mendelssohn and his scores of music and put together those cascading chords of Hark the herald angels sing coupled with the high theology contained therein. It is magnificent. And we were talking also about Handel's Messiah. And, well, as I've done now for, I believe it's about 16 years, last night I sang in the Messiah here as we presented it here in Montgomery, Alabama. And it was, a would like to think, a very Christ-honoring thing to do. I'd like to think that we honored him with our voices as well, although he doesn't really care. I don't think how good the quality of your voice is. You know, when Mary sings, and God is Please, that Mary sings the Magnificat. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in Christ my Savior, God my Savior. And I don't think we're told anything about how good a voice Mary had. I kind of think maybe that God chose her to be the mother of Jesus so she could sing nice lullabies to him when he was a baby. But we don't know that she was a great singer, but She praised God with her heart. And that's what we need to do. Back in the 1920s, my mother was born in 1905, and she was 19, 1924. And she was the choir director at her little rural Lutheran church in western South Dakota. Farmers and cowboys, mainly what made up the church. And she led the entire church, not just the choir, but the entire church, in a performance of the complete Handel's Messiah. You know, one part of the Messiah that we look at is where he is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then that cascading part there, and the government shall be upon him. What does that have to do with government today? Well, we're going to find out. Um, Is it wonderful counselor or is it wonderful counselor? And different people have interpreted that different ways, but we're going to look to the coming of Christ as he is prophesied in the Old Testament and what it means specifically then to say that the government will be upon his shoulder. 
Is that talking about human government, worldly government? Does that mean the government of Washington, D.C. is going to be on his shoulder? What does it mean? Well, we're going to look particularly at Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah, probably more than any other prophet in the Old Testament, prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ, so much so that one writer, Alan McRae, has a book titled The Gospel of Isaiah, because there is so much about the coming of Christ in the book of Isaiah. It's not only in Isaiah, it's in other books of the Old Testament as well. In fact, we see a promise of the coming of Christ, a promise of Christmas in a sense, way back in Genesis chapter 3, where we read of Adam and Eve and their fall in the Garden of Eden. And we read that there will be the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman meaning the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would redeem them from sin. And how he would have enmity between this seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he would bruise the serpent's head by completing the conquest over sin on the cross. Well, the serpent, that is Satan, would bruise his heel. That is, the serpent would seem to get the victory by or by, by having the crucifixion, but actually the crucifixion is the victory over sin. Or we can look to Job. Some believe that Job might be the oldest book in the Old Testament, that it has a number of things that might indicate that it could have been written as early as 2000 B.C. Genesis is probably written about 1400 B.C., because Genesis is one of the five books of Moses. But if you look at some things in Job, you see, for example, references to the Leviathan and to the behemoth, which may refer to dinosaurs. You see, words. there's words that we call hapax legomenae. Now, what a hapax legomenae is, that is a word that is found only once in the Hebrew Old Testament. And in many of the books of the Old Testament, you'll see a few words that that's the only place that appears in the Hebrew. But in Job, you have 79 hapax logomenae, that is, words that are unique to Job, suggesting that it's written in a very early style of Hebrew. We see also that Job is offering sacrifices for the possible sins of his sons and daughters, rather than priests doing so, which suggests that Job is taking place before the institution of the Levitical priesthood, we see that Job's wealth is measured in cattle and sheep and so on, rather than in terms of money or other things that might be the measurement of wealth at a later time, all of which suggests that Job may be the oldest book in the Old Testament. And Job also gives one of the clearest prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ, when he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms shall destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Probably the clearest reference to the coming of Jesus Christ that we find anywhere in the Old Testament. And let's look, though, at Isaiah. And 
several passages that we probably should turn to, but I'm going to look at only two of them. One of them is the prophecy concerning the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, that means God with us. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken by both her kings. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name God with us. Now, religious liberals today would like to dispose of that prophecy, and they will dispose of it by saying that actually he's not speaking about a virgin here. He's actually speaking about a young woman. And the word that is used here, the word alma, usually means virgin. Occasionally, it can be used to mean young woman, occasionally. But unlikely, particularly when you see the direct article in front of it, ha-alma, the virgin. In the context of the 700s B.C., this would make no sense at all. But if we are predicting a coming Messiah who would be virgin-born, then it makes a great deal of sense. Now, as I say, that word ha'alma normally means virgin. With a direct article, almost always means virgin. It could possibly mean young woman. However, when we look to the way Matthew translates this, when we see this verse quoted in the New Testament and Many of the Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament. But as Matthew quotes this, he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And for virgin there, he uses the word parthenos in the Greek, which means only virgin. Not only that, but when we look to the Septuagint, this is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek by Hebrew scholars around 200 B.C. Well, let's look at that right after the break. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and learning a little bit about uh, Christmas and in particular, uh, in taking a deeper dive into that wonderful line about the government shall be upon his shoulders. Interesting, these passages that we're looking at here, all of them find their way into Handel's Messiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Likewise, the one we mentioned earlier from Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth. We usually sing that at Easter time. And the one we're going to be looking at mostly here in this second segment of this program today, but we were talking about the Septuagint. Now, around 200 B.C., a group of 70 Jewish scholars were chosen to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek. 
And when they translated it, when they translated this passage from Isaiah, they translated it with the Greek word parthenos, which, as we saw earlier, means only virgin. Now, this demonstrates then that at least as of 200 B.C., the Jews understood this passage to refer to a virgin birth, not to a son of Hezekiah or some other explanation that religious liberals would try to give it today. But with that in mind, let's go on to another prophecy out of Isaiah, and this is the one that I would like to focus on primarily here today. And this is two chapters later, Isaiah chapter 9, and here we see these words, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I might mention that a few weeks ago, we were looking at some of the leading founding fathers of this nation, and we spent one program on Noah Webster. Well, the Bible that I am using here is called the Webster Bible. This is Webster's translation of the Bible. Now, what Webster did is he took the King James, and rather than starting from scratch, he just started with the King James and used the King James and kept it as it was, except in places where it was either erroneous, which it could have been in a few places, or in which it might be archaic, using a word that would not be understood in the 1800s, in the days of Noah Webster. Anyway, so I'm using Noah Webster's translation of the Bible here, but in this particular text, it is almost identical to the King James. But first of all, look at the language there. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the emphasis here is upon us. That what God is doing here is he has a gift for us. Unto us, a child is born. Jesus is born. And unto us, a son, the son of God, is given. He is given to us. This is God's gift, a gift of grace. And all that we're going to see about this great counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, with the government increasing under him and so on, everything we see here is about us. It is what God is doing for us. Now, we have to understand that... God is doing this for us. He is doing it because we need it. Why do we need Jesus to die on a cross for us? The answer is because we're sinners. Because each one of us has sinned. And as Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. But again, a child is born to us. A son is given for us. The government is going to be upon his shoulder. And I'm going to save that for a little bit. When we see that the increase of his government will have no end, we'll see what is really meant by government here. Not just government in the way we use but his name, that is, what are we going to call this son? What are we going to call this child? And you see these terms that are used, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And let's look at each of these. First of all, wonderful and counselor. Now, some translations put a comma between these. Wonderful, comma, counselor. Others just say wonderful counselor. And if you go through the various translations that are commonly used in the English today, you'll see many translations that go either way on this. So, what about it in the Hebrew? Is there a comma between wonderful and counselor in the Hebrew? The answer is, of course, no, because Hebrew does not use commas. There were punctuation marks that were added to the Hebrew language about 600 A.D. Prior to that, there were no commas in Hebrew. And that being the case, Hebrew will not be able to answer this question for us. Well, so is wonderful a name or a noun? Or is wonderful an adjective modifying counselor? Again, if you look through the original Hebrew in which this is written, you're not going to find a clear answer to that because Hebrew is not neatly divided into adjectives and nouns the way English is. And so I can only say if you go back to the original language, and I'm not a Greek scholar, I've had Greek in seminary, but I wouldn't, I'd say maybe I've had just enough Greek to be dangerous, and that's about all, but I can use the Greek lexicon, and what I can tell you is that grammatically, each of these is, could be correct. So which is it? I am going to suggest that Isaiah's meaning here is wonderful counselor. And the reason I suggest that is the parallel structure in which Isaiah is writing. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace or Peaceful Prince. If you look at that as a structure of four, each one has a basic noun and a modifier. And I suggest that Isaiah probably intended Wonderful and Counselor to be the same. It doesn't matter that much. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is a counselor. And so whichever interpretation you wish to give to this, and I'm sure like you, Brian, it's a little hard for me to get the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah out of my mind. There he says, wonderful counselor. But at any rate, I think probably wonderful counselor is more in accord with the way Isaiah intended to be writing it. But 
when we say that he is the wonderful counselor, what we mean by this is, first of all, he is a teacher. He does counsel us. He does instruct us. But as he does so, he does so about wonders that we couldn't possibly understand on our own and that no merely human writer could possibly understand. Jesus, being divine, understands divine mysteries that no human can fully understand. And so in that sense, he's not only the counselor, but he is the wonderful counselor. And we'll go on to mighty God and so on after this. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and we're talking a little bit about some Christmas music, but maybe in a way you haven't thought about. Colonel, I'm really enjoying uh, your perspective on uh, Handel's Messiah, particularly uh, the scripture that, uh, you know, for unto us a son is born. Let's see, we, we, uh, where did we get to next? The Mighty King? Is that, is that where we are now? Mighty God. The mm-hmm. Mighty God. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's continue then. Let's look at this text again. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Mighty God. Well, obviously, we know Jesus is mighty. We know that he is almighty. He is capable of doing everything because he is divine. He is God. And not only is he divine, but he has the attributes of divinity that we would ascribe to the Father as well. In fact, there is reason to believe from Scripture that Jesus, the second person, that Jesus is the one who the Father used in the creation of the world. You look to one of my favorite Christmas passages, that being John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, who is the Word? Well, we go on to verse 14 of John 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we're saying here that the Word was God, the Word became flesh, Jesus, and all things were made by him. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. We can go on to look in Colossians, where it said, By whom he made the worlds, all things were made by him, and by him all things consist. Likewise, in the book of Hebrews, we see a similar reference. And so we can truly say of him that he is the mighty God, the almighty God. But now we come to a part that may of all parts here be the most confusing of all, and that is the everlasting Father. How can you call the Son 
the everlasting Father. Yes, the Son is God, but the Son is not the Father, is he? How do we explain this? Let's say everything that we've looked at here today, I'd say that's probably the most difficult to explain. But when we look to the Hebrew word that is used here for Father, the word of, it means father, can also mean an ancestor, like a grandfather or great-grandfather. But the term of can also mean the creator or the author. For example, we use the word father in the English with a similar meaning. We say that George Washington was the father of his country. We call James Madison the father of the Constitution. We call Thomas Edison the father of electricity. We call Dr. Ed Teller the father of the nuclear bomb, the hydrogen bomb. And so we use that term father in the sense of creator or in the sense of author. Of all the various translations I've seen of this, I think the one that I think probably hits it right on the nail the best is that of John Calvin. When John Calvin renders this passage, Everlasting Father, as author of an endless succession of ages, or several others have simply said author of eternity or creator of eternity. He is not the father in the sense that we read of the father in the scriptures. Rather, we call him everlasting father in an English translation, and I don't think that's really what Isaiah had in mind at all. Rather, he means he is the creator of the ages, creator of an endless succession of ages, and the prince of peace. Peaceful prince, you could put it, or the peace, the prince who brings about peace. Jesus brings about peace, first of all, by making peace with the Father by means of the cross. We were at enmity with God because of our sin. All have sinned, Paul says, and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You imagine Jesus bearing our sins. Think about it this way. I'm not going to ask you, well, I will ask you to think in your mind, how many sins you've committed, let's say, just today. And take those sins, not just the overt acts of sin, but we're thinking also here of sins of the mind, and sins of the tongue, and so on, bad things you said about other people, or bad thoughts you've had of jealousy and other things like that. If we take just those sins for today and put them over here in a pile, then add the ones yesterday and the ones for all week, and then all of the sins that you have committed and will commit in your entire life, and put all those in a pile over here. That's quite a pile of sins, isn't it? And now we add to that pile a similar pile, for every person who has ever lived since the world began and every person who will live until the world ends. Similar pile for each one of them. And now we put all of them together in one pile 
That's quite a pile of sins. And then we take that pile, like the Father did, take that pile and lay that pile on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ, as Christ is dying on the cross. And when he screams out in agony, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is crying out on the cross, not just because of the physical pain, which was horrible, but because of the pain of having all of those sins dumped upon him. And he paid the penalty for those sins by dying there for you and for me. Thank God that he did so. But that is the gift that he gives us at Christmas, the gift that he actually secures for us on Good Friday and seals by his resurrection at Easter. And so with all of that, we can truly call him the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, because he wins our peace for us. He buys our peace for us by paying the penalty for our sins so that now we have peace with God. And we also have the peace of God, that is the peace of heart, that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that our sins are paid for, and knowing that Christ walks with us in everything that we do. So every one of those things, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But what does it mean that what it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Increase of government? Well, Brian, I think you and I, and probably most of our listeners, would agree that the increase of government is not necessarily a good thing. We've been seeing increase of government ever since this country was founded, especially in the last several generations. And I think many of us would wish government would decrease rather than increase. So what does it mean here when it says that the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end? Well, let's talk about what the word government actually means. We use the word government today simply in talking about human government, the government that you would see, for example, in Boise or in Salt Lake City or Montgomery or in Washington, D.C., or if people are living in other parts of the world, wherever your capital is or wherever your city hall or county commission meets and so on, that's the seat of government. But government means much more than that. Government means not just the human government, it means church government, it means self-government, but we're going to see after the break, it means the government of God. Welcome you back to the Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, I'm really enjoying this uh, this discussion about you know the the scripture of uh, you know the the many names of of Jesus and and how it applies uh, not just something we sing about in Handel's Messiah but uh, this this is some really fascinating background. Okay, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it, Brian. I hope our listeners are as well. And I find this to be a fascinating study and so relevant right now at Christmas time, but that the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, that certainly would tell us that God has a role in human government and the idea that there should be an absolute separation of church and state. That certainly is not the intention here. Government is upon his shoulder, but that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. What does this mean? Well, as we were seeing just before the break, Government means more than just human government, the ones we pay taxes to and so on. Government is used here in the sense of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? I'm going to suggest to you the kingdom of God is more than heaven. Heaven will be the perfect institution of God's kingdom, but it is something more than that. It's more than the church. The church is a witness to the kingdom, but... It is something more than that. I suggest to you that the kingdom actually means the rule of God in the hearts of men. And wherever God's word is heard and obeyed, there in some measure is the kingdom. That's why Jesus would say the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom is within you. And that's why he would compare the kingdom to a mustard seed, a mustard seed that starts very small, but grows gradually into something large, and that the growth of the kingdom is unseen. And the fact is, God's kingdom on earth is growing, that the recognition of God is growing. It certainly doesn't seem like it as we live here in this Western Hemisphere, North America. And in fact, if you live in North America today, or if you live in Western Europe today, it would seem that The kingdom of God is fading, the the Christian religion is fading, that we are entering into a secular or maybe even a pagan age in which Christianity is a thing of the past. Plain fact of the matter is, though, in every century since the birth of Christ, Christians have grown, both in terms of actual numbers and in terms of a percentage of the population. And that has been true in the last several centuries, just as it has been true throughout all history. Yes, in Western Europe today and in North America, Christianity seems to be waning. But Christianity is growing rapidly in Africa, where people are hungry for the Word of God. It's growing rapidly in parts of Asia, growing rapidly in Eastern Europe. In South and Central America, we see growth of Christianity there. Christianity is growing throughout the world. It's just up here where we are that it is fading. This area that sent missionaries to the, throughout the world. Now we're in need of missionaries from Asia and Africa to come and evangelize the United States and Western Europe. Point of the matter is the kingdom is growing. And the increase in his government does not just mean more laws, more government programs, more government spending, 
more government agents interfering with our lives. Rather, the increase of his government means the growth of his kingdom in the sense of Christianity expanding and the word of God being proclaimed and being obeyed. When we say government will be upon his shoulder, we mean not only the human government, the state, but we mean the church, we mean the family, we mean the personal conscience, all forms of government. And we read further that this will be upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. To establish his kingdom, it will be a kingdom in which there is judgment and in which there is justice. Now, what's the difference between judgment and justice? We see that phrase, judgment and justice, or the reverse of that phrase, just justice and judgment, we see those two terms being used together like that at least a dozen times in Scripture. And that tells us something. It tells us, number one, judgment and justice are related. But it tells us, number two, that there must be a difference between them. Otherwise, the Bible would be redundant to say judgment and justice. What is the difference? Justice is a more abstract term or ideal. It is the concept of things being right. Aristotle's definition of justice was, I think, probably a pretty good one. His definition was rendering to each person what is due. But do we really want that? Sometimes we say we do. Sometimes we wish there could be justice in this world, but when we realize that we're all sinners, is that really what we want? What I think we really want is not just justice in that sense, but judgment. Judgment, which is justice, but in the form of a pronouncement. In this case, a pronouncement by God, and a pronouncement that is just, but also that is tempered with mercy. And God's judgment and God's mercy go together. God doesn't compromise his justice. After all, justice is part of his character, and he cannot and will not compromise his character. But God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's justice are over here on one side. On the other side, we have God's love and God's mercy. How do we put those together? They come together on the cross. God doesn't compromise his standards of justice. Rather, the Son meets the standard. The Son pays the penalty for sin, paying it in full by dying there on that cross for us. There was a medieval theologian by the name of Anselm who once asked the question, could someone die for somebody else? And his answer was at first, no, because you can only die for yourself because we're all sinners. But let's say you have someone who is completely righteous, he says. 
Could that person die for someone else? Well, yes, but only for one other person. Well, how then can Christ die for the sin of the world? Anselm's answer was, Christ can die for the sin of the world because he is not just one person. He is an infinite person. And therefore, he can die for the sins of an infinite number of people. And that is God's gift to us at Christmas. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, the kingdom. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, the increase of his government, the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. He'll be on the throne of David, that is, the son of David will be the one who sits on the throne, and Jesus is the son of David, and it'll be to order the kingdom and to establish it with justice, righteousness that is, but also judgment, a judgment that fulfills God's demand of righteousness. And it will take place forever. And how is it coming about? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is not something that we're going to bring about by ourselves, although God might use us in various ways to bring about some of the works of the kingdom. But ultimately, it is by God's grace, the zeal of God himself, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. And with that, we can certainly say that God has given us a wonderful Christmas gift. And we'll talk more about some of these things in the next weeks before Christmas, but with that alone, we can certainly say Merry Christmas to all.